Queer Stories is pleased to introduce you to Natasha Hanisi. She has expertise in complex trauma therapeutic interventions for non-school and school-aged children. Her passion and vision have always been reversing the rising trend of child removal of Pacifica and Indigenous children in Australia. Can you tell our listeners about your background and where you grew up? Uh, So I um, was born in Auckland and mum and dad raised us in Tonga. So we left Tonga when we went to sites in primary school there and then we moved to Australia when I was about nine. So I did grow up in Tonga. Uh, I learnt the language, not fluent in it though, and then came here and finished off primary school and high school in Australia. What are some experiences you've had in Australia being Tongan? Some people say that Australia is kind of like 30 years behind America and New Zealand in terms of uh, the issues that we're dealing with. But we're also different here because uh, we're a much smaller community. There's probably just 100,000 of Pacific Islanders and Māori in Australia. And it's so vast that there's not, we get excited when we see brown people. (laughs) 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 But there's, there's starting to be a lot of us. There are so many that are moving over from New Zealand because there are opportunities here. And I think now, um, you know, I've been here over 35 years, now we're starting to experience the the same issues that um, New Zealand and America and even Tonga are having in terms of uh, we're now being overrepresented in the jails and they're removing a lot of our children uh, from families and putting them in state care. Basically, all the same issues that everyone is having. So, so really, I mean, my experiences, I've had great ones because uh, my parents were quite supportive in pushing us to get an education. So, you know, I, when I um, finished high school, you know, our, our parents were the ones that, you know, sacrificed a lot to come here. And I was one of a handful that actually got into university. Mind you, I got 55 out of 100, which is a ranking of the state. So I wasn't that bright, but they still encouraged me and found a way and worked really hard to pay for school fees to get into university. Uh, I did tourism management, but, you know, some of the people that I, my age group, even though they finished year 12, they, you know, went on to become security guards and nursing home assistants. And that's kind of a real shame because it's kind of the same thing that's happening here. It is survival for some and for others, they don't see the long term. So they're pushing their kids to go work straight after school or even not even finish school earlier instead of sacrificing just, you know, a few more years to get the kids into school so that they could possibly earn a little bit more. So, the, you know, the even though we've had a great upbringing and support here with our parents, I'm I'm seeing it in my in my own family, extended family, I'm seeing it in my friends, I'm seeing it in our community. You know, I see, I see, you know, young girls, you know, being abused and, but I see them as my own little sisters or as, as my own children. So in terms of my experiences, I'm, there are a few of us that have become professionals, you know, working in health and police and teachers and whatnot. And you know, we're trying to band together, but I guess my experience as being in Australia is that we are experiencing what's happening in New Zealand and in America and in Tonga. And I'm hoping that as we get connected through technology, we band together and look at our, you know, what solutions we're offering. But we've got to find smarter ways. We've got to use some of the ways that our ancestors did to work together. And we obviously need God. I mean, everything, a lot of factors help to try and really make a dent in some of the changes to um, for our community. So there are just 
some of the experiences of that. <laughs> Do you think that that's related to intergenerational trauma? Yeah, and absolutely it is. For not so much for the Pacific, I mean, for the Polynesians that have come here. It's, see, because we came here and we had opportunities, but it's actually related to just a lack of knowledge on how to integrate into the system here and work within it and succeed and to help our brothers and sisters succeed. Uh, if anything more, it's, I don't see racism as much here. I just think it's just the system that we're caught up in. Mm-hmm. And um, it's more the intergenerational trauma of, you know, the Aboriginal people here in Australia. And now we're just caught up in a system. So it, it's just this never-ending cycle that they're stuck in. And so the, the crime and the poverty. And now there's research showing that um, neglect is seen as poverty. No, no, sorry. Poverty is seen as neglect. So the fact that, you know, one of our young parents who's, you know, 22, 23, just had a newborn, you know, had family issues, so they tried to go out on their own, rented a house. And so all they could afford is just the rent and a bed and a fridge. And, you know, it was an accident and, you know, with the child, but it, uh, if we didn't act, you know, child protection would have removed the baby. And, you know, we had because they would have been seen to be neglectful of not providing a safe and caring environment for the child. But how can you explain that when they are working and they are provide like they're putting a roof over their head and they have love. Um, the fact that they don't have plate, you know, a pen to keep, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, a lot of weird stuff happening. Would you happen to know um, what is um some of the statistics of Pacific Islanders being in the system? Look, I don't have statistics, but we're, we're overrepresented. Like, same with the Aboriginals and even us. We're not even 1% of the entire mm-hmm. population in Australia. It's like 25 million, something like that. Mm-hmm. But there are more of us Aboriginals and Islanders that are um, and Māori that are they're in the system, in the jail um, system. So, like, something's going on. <laughs> and then they've also passed, it, it also has to do with the laws that they pass here. So one of the laws they've passed, geez, I've forgotten what it's called, but it's um, they're deporting. They're basically deporting anyone who's connected to crime but without due process. And so what they're doing is they're inevitably rounding up a lot of Maoris and they're returning them back to New Zealand. And a lot of them were born here or, or like their whole lives were spent here and they've, they're splitting families apart. And that is such a... A major issue right now to the point how ridiculous is this Adam there's an Aboriginal man mother his mother is Aboriginal uh, from up north and his father is Maori and the fact that he um, whatever it is some minor crime when he was a young lad like you know he he's uh, being at risk of being deported right now back to New Zealand so his mother's people have to go you know, fight for him, claiming their native title to their land and that he belongs to them to keep him here. Like, how, how can... But I understand that because this Australian government doesn't currently have a treaty. You guys in Hawaii at least are so lucky that you have a treaty or, well, I don't know, I don't know the full thing, um, the background, but, you know, in New Zealand they have a treaty which they, you know, the government also hasn't honoured either and they're still going through that. They don't have nothing here. And so the fight is even bigger here. And that's why it's so important that not only we band together, but it is so important to know your history and you have to know who you are and where you're from. You know, there's a case, um, it's actually my colleague's mother. 
Alamein Emery, and she was Kohanga Reo. If you've heard of it, was the uh, its language nest is what it means. And, and when they revived the language back in in Auckland, New Zealand, in the 80s, it started from there. And they brought all these elders from around the country, and they began teaching the little ones. And so. Alamein Emery, Linda Tuiwai Smith, which you know uh, others may have heard of, um, academics. She's written that famous book, Decolonizing Methodologies. Mm-hmm. Just a handful of people began these kohangareos to teach the little ones the language, the Te Reo Māori, and it you know it birthed from there in the 80s to now, where they teach affluent Te Reo Māori from preschool all the way up to university. And at one point, she was running Kohangareo and she was helping the families, whatever it was, but just didn't comply. And it was something minor, didn't comply with whatever it was with the... And so the, the, the government took her to court and basically shut her down. But she was able to... And she did so much help with the local community, you know, with local gangs and whatnot. But she was able to get out of the court case because she was able to claim herself as an Indigenous person for... She's from the... Kingi Tana line, and there was the letter from the treaty that was written in the treaty era era um, that was submitted as evidence, mm-hmm. um, also to to show how the court, which is under the Crown, the Commonwealth, did not have rights, especially to her as an, an Indigenous um, Ngati Tuhoe woman, mm-hmm. and so they couldn't convict her. That's why I'm saying it's so important that you you have to know where you are from. You have to know your history. Not I'm saying everyone's going to get rounded up and thrown into jail, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, these things are so important. It really is. Why do you think that there's a lot of Pacific Islanders, particularly in Australia, that are incarcerated? Is it because of drug use or is it because of petty crimes or do you think it's racial profiling? Uh, look, it's um, it's racial. Pro- it's a mix of everything. It, it's bad everywhere. But when you have a record, when when you look at your aunties and your uncles around you and, you know, their factory workers or their security guards, th- there's no hope. There's, you know, you're only as good as what's expected of you. And so if you don't have a lot of great role models around to push you to do better and to play smarter and to develop, you know, we've all got God-given talents and abilities and if we don't develop that, but we just get sucked into the system of being idiots and, you know, going out there and getting wasted on the weekend and, you know, it's a nasty cycle that you can get caught in. And also, you know, my, my parents' generation, they never communicated. They never talked to us. And yet, you know, when you don't have parents who talk to you and also don't understand the system, they can't navigate and help you out of the system. Mm-hmm. Not out of the system, but how to navigate legally. Like a lot of them get into trouble in the court now and they don't show up and it just makes it worse for them and so they don't have knowledgeable people in the court system or even even in a um, Polynesian funded you know charity organization to help them work through it there you know there is one um, passionate woman Loletta Tiedemann that I know who's doing that she's studying law but in terms of funded Pacific Island owned and operated organizations there's not many and if they are you know they're busy arguing with each other it's ridiculous yeah anyway the same issues that you have back there (laughs) yeah we have a lot of issues Um, (laughs) but 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 it's about recognizing that and stepping back from it and observing it 
and not getting sucked into it. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to my 13-year-old son who's in year seven, I have to explain these things to him. Like I talk to him like my parents never talked to me. But I explain to him how the things work and, and why, you know, teenagers, his classmates act like that and why the parents act like that. And when he experiences it for himself, he's like, wow, you know, like our parents need a lot of education. And then, you know, we become young parents as well. They need a lot of education on how to be better parents and also how to stop the abuse and to recognize it. And then also how to, we need to stop beating each other. You know, that's why DV is so huge. And, and recognize that there are reasons that are bigger than us, like the economy and, and how, you know, big business works and all that, and not blame it on our loved ones and just love our families, our children, and find ways to make an impact in the system, prepare our kids to do it. And I'm not saying for them to become uh, fully Caucasian in what they're doing. Like, we've got to use what, you know, the knowledge of our ancestors and the knowledge of the new world that we live in and balance both worlds and I don't know, it has to there has to be a better way. It, it it is being done, but you know, we've got to start having these conversations with our kids, with each other. Uh, why are there a lot of uh, Pacific Islanders who are migrating to places like Australia? Ah, because um New Zealand the economy and the pay is really low. And so there are greater opportunities here in Australia. I mean they are raping this country. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, but in Northern Northern Territory, 10 years ago, the government um, set up this emergency thing they called the Northern Territory Pension, and they pretty much took away Aboriginal, and they're called Aboriginal Land Councils. That's So if, you, if you're in your territory, everyone in that community belonged to that land council, and they manage it, and then they work together with the government. But the government pretty much went in and took over, and they based it on the fact that supposedly Aboriginal men and grandfathers were abusing children. And then 10 years later, uh, and it, it went through a court case, Supreme High Court and everything, to find out that it was based on a lie from one of the assistants of the Indigenous Affairs Minister. Get that. And how come it hasn't been reversed? And so they've allowed big mining companies to come in and friggin' rape and extract all, you know, a lot of mining, I mean, um, the minerals from the earth, you know, because it's a beautiful country out there. And then now the state's broke. And and so there are a lot of men that do fly in, fly out. They call it fly in, fly out. And so they fly up there, you know, they get two, three, four grand a week, Mm -hmm. which is big money. And then they come back, you know, two weeks later. and And so, you know, when they're hearing these opportunities, and, you know, there's apparently a lot of homelessness now in New Zealand. Families are flying over in droves. So that's kind of the reason why there's a bit of a, you know, migration thing from from New Zealand in particular. Why did your parents uh, migrate to Australia? Uh, education, really, that was it. Just to give us a op- uh, better opportunity for an education. Most people know of Tonga as being the last independent Polynesian kingdom. Can you give our listeners a short background on Tonga? Sure. Yeah, okay. So um, the current king is King Tobol VI, and King Tobol V was his older brother who passed and didn't have any children, but his father is King George IV. Now, King George IV, so there are three lines in Tonga. There's Tu'i Tonga, so Tu'i means king, Tu'i Tonga. Tu'i 
kanoku polu, and that's connected to Samoa, upolu, in the name in there, and then tuiha atakalawa. So tuitonga was kind of like the spiritual ruler, because that, you know, we came from Ao Eitu, who was... And then um, I think the assassinations on his life, so he just became the spiritual ruler and gave it to the Tui Hatakalawa. So um, King George IV's father had the Tui Hatakalawa line and his mother had the Tui Kanukupolu line. So with the marriage of his parents, the two lines were, were connected, so with him. Um, but then the Tui Tonga line, they don't have it. They, they got it from their mother, King George IV's wife. And so with the current reign of the, the, the family, all three lines are connected. And so that's who we have as our rulers in Tonga. And just, you know, uh, King George I, when he accepted Christianity in Vava'u, he, it's um, at the place called Bo'ono, which means six pillars or six posts, I think. Uh, he dedicated Tonga to God. And I think that's kind of also what makes us different. It also explains our flag, which is the cross. And the dove, I think, is on the crest. But um, that's a little bit of a brief history on Tonga. Uh, what are some connections that you know of between Tonga and Hawaii? I know that they've found um, petroglyphs. is kind of like, you know, the Hawaiian, not the Hawaiian, the Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. Um, but the petroglyphs in Tonga are, are very similar to apparently ones that have been found in Hawaii. So that's one connection that I know of. I'm no expert. <laughs> but the other, um, I mean, the other connection I know of and I find quite interesting is a uh, northern island group of Tongans called Vava'u. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an, another connection. I mean, we're all ancestors, but it's also another connection um, between our people, and even in Samoa, and all the way back to uh, all the way back to Southeast Asia. So, on online chat groups, uh, there's a tendency that I've noticed between, particularly Tongans and Samoans, where they argue about specific points of history. Okay, like. Well, okay, so the two E titles, for example, is one thing that they like to argue about. What is the historical connection between Samoa and Tonga? Oh, look, I think we're brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're brothers and sisters, you know, but someone just wants to have the upper hand. Um, what is this historical rivalry between Tonga and Samoa? When did that start or how did it start? Look, I, I think there's a number of things. Eh? I, I think it has to do when when Maliatoa, you know, finally fought off the Tongans and got rid of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they gave him that name and so that that was his name um but then i think living here i think it's um a territorial you know this gang gang thug whatever culture that's come from you know african america in you know in the movies Mm -hmm. um gangs aren't as we don't really it's not as prevalent here eh? not as bad as there it has to do with that and i think it's just young boys you know who are quite territorial and have, don't have male role, role models around to teach them how to be um, good men mm-hmm. instead of being, you know, a, a man that really doesn't take care of himself and his own family and his community. Yes, I, I think it's a number of things, but um, we, we really don't have it as bad here. I just think it's, you know, it's a combination of things, eh? just a bit of immaturity and, I mean, there are better things to argue about. <laughs> <laughs> Like, seriously, why argue about, you know, history 
Uh, what, what can we look at like today? Look at reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Open your eyes and look around what's happening in your own community and do something there. And you will find, I see Tongans and Samoans and you know, Filipinos and Aussies coming together and doing things to help. Uh, but when you um, have too much time in your hands and want to cause trouble, you know, you'll use the Wi-Fi and sit on the computer and cause havoc. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be smart. Like, what kind of a warrior are you? You a keyboard, you know, troll warrior? Or you want to get your hands dirty, get out there in the community, like, you know, talk to the young boys, talk to the young girls. I, I find it shocking. There are some young girls in our high school that are just savage, like, fights. Like, seriously, I mean, that's really rare, but I'm, I mean, I'm just starting to see now. I'm like, what the hell is going on with <laughs> our, our young people? Seriously, where are the elders? But the thing is, um, the way the economy is going now, like, even the mums are out at work. So when mums and dads are out at work and your, your uncles and your aunties, the kids are raising themselves at home. And so they don't have anyone to, to you know, guard over them. And that's where, you know, abuse is happening, whether it's in the family or from outsiders. It's the way, you know, and then when you love money so much, you know, that you just want to send everyone off. Like, do you have to have send everyone off? Like, there has to be someone at home teaching these children and guarding over them. Traditionally in Polynesia, or in most of Polynesia, children were pretty much raised by the entire village. So do you think that there's a disconnection between how children are raised now and how children were raised traditionally? Yeah, yeah, there's a huge disconnect. Like even here, you know, we're disconnected from our culture and our language. Mm -hmm. You know, we we don't have our language taught here in the schools. Uh, You know, so you're lucky that you've got that. Even the Aboriginals don't have their languages taught in the schools here. But, I mean, we do have just recently, uh, you know, a Tongan language school that's been run here locally for the last, I think, three years maybe. Mm-hmm. But there's been a huge disconnect because our parents are probably not looking after us. Uh, and if they are, it's we leave it up to the school system. And so we've got Balangis or whatever, you know, raising our children. But then we've got our own children raising themselves. And, you know, that you know, children's brains don't develop fully until, you know, even at the age of 21, so that, that doesn't help when they're raising themselves. <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, my parents both worked when they got here, and so we did have to raise ourselves, but luckily they were supportive. You know, they, they whatever we needed, you know, they tried to encourage us to go to school, but a lot of parents don't encourage that here because, oh, rents here are ridiculous. I have families, like islander families that are paying a 1000 1400 a week for a five, six-bedroom house to house the entire, like, you know, it, it is ridiculous the way the economy is going here. And there are people, there are so many that are homeless. People can't afford, afford rent. It is a nasty cycle. And so the services that are here at the moment aren't offering one that's fully tailored for our community mm-hmm. with our own uh, solutions and even with our own workers because the research also shows that there's so much racism and bias amongst the Caucasian workers, you know, the child protection workers, that they will, they're ready to, to remove children of colour than they are of, you know, Caucasian children. 
um, like like I mentioned before, due to poverty. And so the, the whole system is really against you unless you've got people who are knowledgeable on the laws and the regulations and how the like because each system, each department has their own system and laws. You know, the Department of Health, police, uh, juvenile justice, education. So you know, but then you find a lot of our islander workers get burnt out because they're often working outside of their normal job, going in aid of these families, working long evenings and weekends, you know, not with their own families, to try and save these kids and families from being torn apart. And so one of the things that I did is I went in to get the licence because I couldn't trust it. Well, no one, I'm a pre-K teacher. I did my bachelor's in tourism management because my parents were in tourism and then um, I wasn't really interested in it. And then <laughs> uh, because I saw all the crap happening in our community and really seeing how you needed to intervene at an early age when kids were babies, and they say when you help children between the age of zero to eight, then they don't get affected, uh, the trauma doesn't affect them. But after that, it's harder. And so I studied my Bachelor's of Early Childhood. As I was one of the rare ones, and that's why I really support people getting into early education. There's hardly anyone. But for people to get their education, but also go in and be a pioneering, start a business, start, like, start a charity, whatever it is, like try and provide solutions. So what I did is I got my license um, to be a children's service, and so we took care of your, your kindergartens, but home-based, mm -hmm. and so that helped us because our educators were able to teach the language, which you wouldn't get in a mainstream preschool, and mm -hmm. so that was our way of uh, families being um, self-employed and at the same time raising you know children in our community, and then being able to pass on the language and the culture. Uh, I've also gone in and got a license to work with the children from child protection. So this is kind of the stage, it's early intervention, meaning before they legally remove them, where it's just kind of too late, um, when the problems are starting to happen. So we, we care for the children if need be, but we also casework with the families to, um, to try and restore the children and the families together uh, to a point where they're healthy. So you know, I'm only one, but there are a few people that are having a go. And so rather than being the workers for the state, go start, you know, go start a not-for-profit, go start a business and have a go. And it's and here in Australia, no one else is doing it. Um, I think I'm the first Pacific Islander that has this licence in child protection, but there's so many uh Māori and Pacific Islander child protection workers that work for the state, that work for agencies, that, you know, ripping off our children and, you know, abusing them. So become the provider yourself. You know, there's so many solutions to all the issues, whether it's the environment, whether it's education, whatever it is, but we've just got to use our brain and go and get an education and work with others. And mind you, I have, like, a best friend who has never finished school She's the smartest woman I know. So it doesn't mean that you have to finish school either, but you have to find other people who are passionate about what it is that you love to do and, like, stick with them. There's a reason why you end up, like, being really best friends with people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this lady, I've been best friends with her for 10 years and 
we're now to a point where we can now go into the system and make an impact. But that's what I'm saying. You've just got to find other like-minded people, have a vision and stick to it. You've got to go in and make a difference somehow. So, uh, What can parents do uh, while their child is still under five years old that would help them navigate into the system? It depends on which, where in the system. Are they as in they've just been flagged by child protection? or what? Uh, Hopefully it doesn't come to that. But what I mean is, uh, what techniques or steps could parents take to better adjust their children who are going to be entering into kindergarten or year one? Okay. Uh, look, I would recommend them getting at least two days of preschool, kindergarten, Um because then that'll allow them to develop relationships with the teachers and learn. Um, kids are so capable. But if you have a school that teaches your language, uh. and the Hawaiian language, you need to put them in there. They need their cultural identity and as much play as possible. Play, play, play. In the, um, out uh. in the park, the beach, like not inside, not with plastic toys, out in nature your kids will develop physically, mentally, socially, obviously with other kids. But that is honestly the best preparation you can have for your children. And the reason, sorry, the the reason why I say that also is because it comes from, I mean, that's what we did back in the day. But, you know, the, the top education systems at the moment, you know, that is coming from Finland, for example, because they have what they call the forest schools. So children, like kindergartens, their classroom is the outdoors. They're out in cold jackets in the snow, mm-hmm. and they are learning to play out in the snow, play out in, in the summertime. They're learning to climb trees, so they're learning to take risks. I mean, the adults are there to, to facilitate, but they're so healthy because they're getting vitamin D. They're learning to collect, you know, they, they negotiate and talk with the kids, but this is where – and then – they've realized that kids aren't mature enough to learn until they're about seven or eight. So mm. they don't really have a formal kind of school where, the, you know, you sit down and it's like you've got to copy off the board, memorize everything. They, it, it's just play. And you've got to understand that children learn through playing. So don't think it's a waste of time. You have to allow your kids to play. Now, again, you, you can do stuff with your kids, you know, in the kitchen, like, you know, allow them to make a mess, get them to help you making cakes and whatnot. Like, you know, when we moan that, you know, oh, get outside, you're making a mess. Like, know when to engage your kids and when not to. And this helps you bond with your own children because, you know, we need that as they grow, they grow way too fast. So, you know, get your kids involved in making dinner. Like, get them involved in sweeping the house, <laughs> cleaning up. They need those skills, man. Like, hello, I'm tired of cleaning the house. They need to get involved. <laughs> but they need these um, These are basic living skills. Like, I'm shocked at, you know, young men that don't even know how to boil an egg. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> Tell me I'm going to slap you one. <laughs> you, you need to get your children involved. It, it, don't be so traditional where only the women do it or only the men learn. Everyone needs to learn how because at one point someone's going to be struck down with a flu and no one's going to be able to cook. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it. My advice as a teacher and a mother. Do you believe that the way that we structure the school system, I think Hawaii is very similar to 
Australia in a sense that we still have we still structure our school system according to Victorian standards, which means that children are forced to go into a classroom, sit down, be quiet, take exams and whatnot, rather than you know full participation or some other method. Do you think that that works for Pacific Islander children? No, and it, uh, and here's one reason. We are mainly kinesthetic learners. Mm-hmm. Kinesthetic meaning we learn by moving, by doing. And so rather than, you know, copying a recipe down off boards, it won't make sense unless we actually get the ingredients, collect it, know how to collect it, where from, how much it costs, and then actually put it together. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, mean that every, you know, Polynesian whatever, Pacific Islander, Hawaiian, Maori is kinesthetic uh, because some of us are visual learners as well. Um, there's uh, multiple intelligences. I think there's seven intelligences that we can all have and we can have more than one. So there's musical, there's mathematical, there's social, emotional, blah, blah, blah. Another reason why the current uh, education system doesn't work is because it dumbs it down, meaning our children are not taught how to think critically. They're just taught to learn what's off the board and that's it really taught how to analyze and we're not taught our history either the real history uh we're just taught what you know the government wants us to know um so that we're not fully empowered to fight back in ways that we need to you know there's so much apathy here in australia it is shocking eh? what they're doing here to the aboriginal people a lot of the locals as australians do not march they don't go out and protest and we should be and it has to do with our education system. Uh, and the third reason is because, so part of the thing that I do, that I specialize in, it's called trauma-informed education and care. Okay. So it's how to educate a child who is go, is suffering from complex trauma. Complex trauma is the new catchword. It's the new word that they use for disability because it's more positive. But it just doesn't mean a physical disability, a mental, um, an emotional, whatever it is. And with the trauma that we have, whether it's intergenerational, whether you're Indigenous or not, whether it's the trauma of incarceration here or just having a teacher, you know, or teachers at school who are just racist or, or just have no heart, like from personal experience, you know, my six-year-old, Mm-hmm. Just a few weeks ago, you know, it's a middle class Catholic school. His class teacher has told him all year how he's horrible, how he can't sit still. And not that, see how kinesthetic learner? Mm-hmm. He can't, so that she can't change her teaching to match everyone's needs. Everyone has to just, you know, suit what how she teaches. And so he's been missing out on school all year because of her hate school. And then she, she, has the nerve to tell me in November, like 11 months, so we start school January to December. So 11 months in the school year, she has the nerve to tell me that the reason why she's finally observed him, the reason why she realizes he's not doing his schoolwork, he doesn't listen, he sits there and he looks around and doesn't, you know, ask for help, is because he doesn't have pencils and rubber and glue to sit and do his work. And we gave his pencil case, it's been in his bag. And it disappeared in July. It was in his bag every day, and I'm thinking it's in his class tray. So I'm like, you know, my husband and I were like, we, well, I was a bit shocked. So I didn't say anything. My husband got mad and said, what is she trying to say, that we can't afford pencils and glue? 
but like this is the question that I had to pose back to the school. Why is it November that you're now telling me you're observing him? And why is it you cannot call me, email me, ask for a meeting, ask where his pencils are? Like it, it's been six months since his pencil case has been missing. Like, do you, do you know what I mean? We need to, like as parents and as students, we need to start asking these questions and be critical enough to ask these questions of the school. So, you know, she could have turned around and said, um, she's ne- like, we are neglecting him but not providing him with basic equipment for an education. Now, I could have had my, now that's really silly. So she wouldn't, there's nothing to, you know, ring child protection on us. But imagine that, my six-year-old who's hated school all year, just every morning crying, I don't want to go to school, mum. I don't want to, I hate school, mum. I hate school, mum. Now to be yelled at by one of the office staff for peeing. Okay, he, so I arrived there, his head in his hands, bawling his eyes out, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? So when I realized what was going on, I had to make a complaint because you have to understand the history, please. The Catholic Church has got a massive lawsuit here in Australia, and I know that they do in mainland America, but there are priests that have been raping the children here and so there's a three over three billion dollars that they're paying out to uh, you know there's a royal commission here on, on on the whole thing here and so it's on catholic school grounds and so it would have been reported to child protection like it would because as teachers and anyone that is employed by the school it's a mandatory report they need to report it mm-hmm. so in her eyes it would have been inappropriate and they could have tagged it as sexualized behavior does that make sense right now you don't assume that, right? Because then they would have had to look for a pattern. So she, they would have gone and spoken to the teacher. Oh, yeah, they've neglected him because she hasn't provided, you know, pencils. And, do, you, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then they would have asked the teacher, what's he been like all year? So in the beginning of the year, she doesn't see from his eyes. He hates her because <laughs> she, she just doesn't. She's just, she's not loving. She's a strict teacher and he needs a strict person, but she doesn't know how to teach with complex trauma. And so in the beginning of the year, there was one concern of hers that she did say he's touching the girls, meaning like tapping them on the shoulder, like getting in their personal space. And not just the girls, the guys, you know, the boys as well, getting in their personal space. But for him, because I kept asking him, you know, I'm trying I'm trying to get him to feel like he belongs here. Like, who are your friends? You know, what's your friend's name? I don't know. So what he does is he goes and taps them on the shoulder because he's trying to get their attention. So can you see how this paints a picture? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I'm like devastated. <laughs> And I'm like, that can paint a picture that my child can be friggin' removed from me. Like, what the heck? The education system here is the same there. <laughs> so does, a, you know, a Pacific Islander or a Maori parent know how to handle this? No. But because of what I was able to do and to call on some of my teachers to come in, I was able to prevent any of any then like doing anything. And her attitude, the office staff, her, um, her attitude was disgusting. And so she didn't have a very nice attitude. So, you know, when you have people that have it against you as well, like, you know, they can make all sorts of reports. So that's what I'm saying. Parents don't know how to make reports, when to make reports, how to be diligent about everything that happens to their child. You know, and, and like, and she had written her term three report based on his, you know, lack of equipment. Yeah, our education system is not the best and not for complex trauma. The, the, the teachers are not taught here. They're only just taught how to teach. 
be teachers, but you have to also know how to be a social worker, a nurse, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything. And they don't teach you that at university. You're, you, you just go and get a bachelor's degree in primary education or early childhood or, you know, like I think we had one class in nutrition and if you ask the, those who are studying, you know, to become a doctor, they get one class in nutrition as well. Like what the heck? <laughs> Nutrition is a, a major part in our children's ability to think and concentrate in class. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm saying the way the education system is set up does not work. Like I find I have to go get several degrees just to be able to be taken seriously. <laughs> like mm-hmm. even now I'm contemplating, well, I got accepted to do my Master of Special Education. And, you know, you need that to get your foot in the door. What are some of the signs that your child has um, trauma-informed, complex trauma? What's the term that you used? Yeah, complex trauma. Complex trauma. Um, Yeah, the signs are if they've got a speech delay. (laughs) And look, any situation where, where you haven't been present as a parent when the child was there, you know, it could have been a job situation and so you're focused on just trying to earn money, right? You know, and the second priority is like feeding the kids, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're not, like they're beautiful kids, but, you know, so it could be a speech delay, it could be um, tantrums that are just, they, they can't control their, their tantrums and, and like at the snap of a finger, they go from hot to cold. It could be just withdrawn. But parents will know, and, you know, and if schools are implementing this trauma-informed education and care thing, you know, which maybe your Kamehameha school should look into, it's called the uh, Adverse Childhood Experience, ACE survey. And so rather than blaming the kids, you know, when they come into, you know, your class and, you know, they're causing trouble, rather than saying, look, you know, oh, you're being, you know, naughty again, you ask them, and it's the same thing you ask parents, what happened to you? Because obviously something has happened to the child for them to act like that. Mm-hmm. We are at the very essence good, loving people, and even children can be. It, it depends on who is there to love them. So, adverse childhood experiences survey, and even uh, you know people can look that up and and do it themselves. You know, because then you'll recognise any trauma that's happened. You know, with you and but really, you know, love your family and just love your kids and just. Get them through it. Get them through it. Get them to think critically. Get them in the best, not in the best schools, the schools that allow them to think critically, the schools that allow them to discover their own history and the history of the land you live in, the community you live in, the history of the people that are running your community. You know, they're the schools and the people that you need to surround yourself in. What do you think are the obligations for Pacific Islanders who are living in places that have other indigenous people. Like, for example, um, you being a Tongan or living in Australia. What do you think your obligations are to Australian Aboriginals? Uh, look, um, so I live on Darug uh, lands, mm-hmm. Darug and Tharawal. And so I live and work here. My children's bito, the, uh, their belly button, which in our culture we bury in the land. So they belong to this land too. But it does in no way mean that they are the traditional owners. And so uh, my obligation, and oh, my husband, uh, my son doesn't understand it yet because he thinks, why are you fighting for indigenous sovereignty, mom? <laughs> uh, but our obligation really is to help them fight for um, sovereignty and 
that uh, life for them is fair. You know, like in the Northern Territory, for example, I think 95% of all Aboriginal children in Northern Territory are incarcerated. That is a disgusting statistic. I don't think it's as bad in the other states, but so I, I can't sit by and um, allow them to be treated poorly and, and turn a blind eye. So the work that I do is selfishly, it's for our people, but I know that it will work for Indigenous people. So whenever we are given permission to work with local elders, then we will do it. Actually, we have been given permission, sorry. Uh, William Cooper is a um, Yorta Yorta man. It's uh, down south of Australia, Melbourne, Victoria, and he passed in 1930, something like that. Now, he is well known because he was part of the group that fought for sovereignty and I think they set up the first, one of the first, uh, on Night Off Day or something. That's when they celebrate Aboriginal Day every year. But what's important about him is when uh, World War Two, I think, or one of the World Wars broke out and Hitler was rounding up the Jews in Germany, you know, when they smashed all the the shop doors, rounding them up, and, and the smashing of the glass, they call it Crystal Nacht, I think that's what it means. The governments in uh, England or Europe and in America didn't really say anything. So if you look in the newspapers, they never said anything. And so this man, uh, William Cooper, saw it and he spoke out and he protested because he saw how no one was saying anything and that it was cruel uh, and that he knew what it was like. He understood what the Jewish people were suffering because his people were suffering the same and so he spoke out on their behalf to protest against what the Hitler was doing and he wrote a letter and he marched to the German consulate here in um, it was down in Melbourne to protest and when he arrived there and gave the letter they refused to accept it and so I think 80s later his grandson did the same march here I think he or in Germany remember where and so they did the same march and they delivered the letter and the German uh, embassy accepted the letter as well and apologized and so you know you, you've got to make a stand and you know even if you're the only voice or whatever it is uh, but um, our one of our visions is to have a school that uh, focuses on trauma-informed education and care especially for indigenous as well as Pacific Islanders Maori and anyone else because there's your normal mainstream schools and then they have what they call the behavioral schools. So these are the ones that either have been removed or just having challenging behaviors. Removed as in, in state care, agency, whatever it is. Um, and so they're behaviorally challenged, but even religious schools uh, don't even have schools like this. It's just the state government. And then they don't offer a trauma-informed, culturally responsive approach to educating these children and so we're like well if no one's good if the government's not going to offer it well we've got to find a way and so it's been two years um the grandson has agreed uh to allow us to he's given us the honor of naming a school after him so it's called the william cooper school we're a public company limited by guarantee it's not for profit but um we haven't been able to submit <laughs> our application but that's okay god will provide um, because we need land uh and it, it'll come through as we move through this world we find other people you know that have similar visions resources passions so you know we just 
spread the word and, you know, work together and, you know, things will happen. But no, the education system, whether it's mainstream, behavioural, uh, even in preschool, it, they cannot cope with children with disabilities and children with complex trauma. Um, and, it, you know, it's all profit for them, you know, even in preschools. Like, they, they don't want any kids that have behavioural or disabilities, you know. So, like, what, what do you do when you're a family with a child with complex trauma, which a lot of us have, mm-hmm. and with a disability? Hello, we've got to create our own system. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's true, though. I think special education here, there's a lot that needs to be improved. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but how, how does it work there? Because, see, in New Zealand, see, they, they've got... Um, full immersion schools all the way to university, but they don't have disabilities, eh? Like, um, what? So apparently we're advanced here in terms of you can do a bachelor's and a master's in special education here, but there I think maybe there's only one and it's a master's. Um, but it's also, again, how the system is set up because when there's the Ministry of Education in New Zealand and then there's the Ministry of Health or whatever it is, and so if they've got a disability child or or someone from social services, you need funding. So they can't combine the funding. And so they just say that's a health or a social services issue. And then government departments, obviously, it's bureaucratic. It's really hard to work together. So it's hard for them to work together. And that's how um, complex. So where they're, they're stuck in New Zealand at the moment is because they cannot move past where they currently are in full immersion to complex trauma. It's because also how the current system is the the government and the funding structure is set up, but it's also how um, the funding, the, the Ministry of Education, whatever it is, even their full immersion, apparently when they advocated for full immersion and got it legally and they've got their own department, they still have to report to the Crown. So they're still begging to the Crown. Whereas here, we're trying to go around that. Like, yes, we're trying to set up the William Cooper School, but now we're uh, connected with another Indigenous group here in Australia who have set up their own sovereign government. They want to have their own um, education school. And so why do we want to report to the Crown? Help them set up their own school so that they report to themselves. Um, that's true self-determination. Like, why do we have to play the game? Play the, you know, the Western colonization game? Like, think. Why are you being told that's the only system that you need to, you know, use? Like, if it's not working, set up something else. So we're really excited because the reason why that should work here is because they're not going to the Crown, whereas that's where New Zealand is stuck at the moment because they're still kowtowing, you know. Like, yeah, we're full immersion, but they're still kowtowing to the government, to the Crown, and and, and they're still stuck to the, the structure of the Crown where the funding is separated and they can't deal with complex trauma. So we look at what's happening around the world and we're like, well, you know, we stand back. It may take a little bit longer, but we recognise what's happening in New Zealand and we don't want to play that game. Well, we'll try it another way. We'll try in the system, out of the system, a mix of the systems. Like, what works? We don't care. We want our kids to do well. And But in a, in a, commun- in a society where everyone does well, no one should be at a disadvantage. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, issues here with that. Um, because, for example... We pattern our immersion school system actually after New Zealand. <laughs> so, um, 
there you go. I've just given you a history lesson of what's not working there. And this is from, a, like, my colleague is a child, a product of Kohangareo, where it first started. Mm-hmm. And so she knows the ins and outs of, of where it ha- hasn't happened there. You know, she's primary teacher trained too. And she's been here, working here in child protection, in education, seeing where it has worked, where it hasn't worked. And we just, we don't want to buy into, get sucked into the game, you know, and all this heavy regulations, it takes time. And, you know, maybe we can find other people to help set, you know, those systems up, but we also need to be able to step back and also not do it to the Crown or to the American government or to the, you know. The settler government, government, yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatever government, you know, says they have sovereignty. I mean, you know, your own government, your own people have sovereignty too. You've got to actually believe in that and, and make it true, like in more ways than one. Uh, do you have any message for other Tongans in the diaspora? I think, it, not just Tongans, I think it's just, you know, all our fellow um, Pacific Islanders, Māori, you know, at the end of the day, we're all family. Not all, but most of our ancestors came from Taiwan through Southeast Asia, Philippines through Indonesia, through to Micronesia, East Timor, Papua New Guinea, no doubt through Australia, but also through Vanuatu, Solomons, and out to Fiji, on to Tongan Samoa, um, on to Hawaii, to Tahiti, uh, down to Cook Islands in New Zealand. We, we are siblings. And believe it or not, we are, um, as family, we must recognize that we are going through similar issues and we need to claim our birthright and to work together to bring harmony like harmony not only to ourselves you know so we're not reckless but we're centered harmony to our environment and we need to teach that to everyone on our lands our own lands back home i've got to teach that to my kids here to respect the lands here and the people here otherwise what's the point we've got to open our eyes and learn like sit and listen you know, listen to what others are saying. Don't be quick to jump at, you know, Samoan tongue. And it's rubbish. Like, we need to learn what the history, what's happening to the lines? Why is it happening? What's happening to the Māori? Why is it happening? Why is it happening? What's happening to the Aboriginals in Australia? What's Why, you know? And just open your eyes and just educate your kids. You need to sacrifice what you can. Stop making it about the money and just try and get yourself educated and your kids so that we can make a difference somehow. Otherwise, what's the point? That's really my message. <laughs> and have fun while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I mean, have fun because it, it, there's there's so much beauty in our culture and history. You know, um, go back to the lands. You think that money's only made in the city? Go back to your lands. There's money to be made on your own lands too. Seriously. But in a way where you don't have to abuse your your you know your family and your your community it can be done be arrogant enough to expect that you can make a comfortable living and to be able to look after your family and your community you have to believe that and find a way to get it done and then life will be enjoyable uh, there was one more question i wanted to ask you uh, how has intergenerational trauma affected uh, groups such as the australian aboriginals uh, one of the ways it's impacted them is 
just them presenting with different issues. So a lot of them get either diagnosed with autism or it could be as simple as ADHD. <laughs> they have developmental delays and a lot of it is um, social, emotional, physical disabilities. They don't have the skills to be able to sit in a mainstream class where children that have no disabilities and so a lot of cases these children need assistant teachers aides in the classroom they need sessions with the school counselor they need art therapy they have you know in our public schools here they have a lot of um, classes special ed classes that cater for them and so a lot of them are in these classes uh, a lot of them don't even know how to read and because of issues happening with families because families they get caught up in crime or you know racial profiling and they're you know taken into custody they're dealing with those things they have high anxiety levels and so they aren't able to focus uh, whether they get fed at home, whether there's enough food to eat, you know, well, you know yourself, you, you get hangry. So they have temper tantrums or they can't focus in the classroom. They aren't able to sit still. They aren't able to copy and follow instructions of what's happening off the board. It's a lot of these, you can tell, because they're just not able to sit in a classroom. Now, in a mainstream, middle-class school, you have all the kids who are able to sit down and follow instructions and to be able to do the class. Now, you have a few that are misbehaving, and that's just you know, hormones and whatnot, but they don't really cause trouble. You know, uh, They don't really have many issues at home, but in terms of special education in um, public schools, which a lot of them go to because they can't, you know, it's like the school fees are like 80 bucks a year, and they can't afford private schools, it's because they're dealing with these issues and, and they have so many symptoms or issues that they present in the classroom that it it does, it, you just, you can't cope with just the teacher. You need others uh, in the classroom. Then they get sent to reading programs to assist them to get their reading up to level, up to speed. Basically, you can tell when an Aboriginal child is uh, suffering intergener intergenerational trauma is because they need a lot of professionals to assist them to reach the level of their peers. That's how you tell. Uh, any last thoughts before we end the podcast? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it's been long. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Native Stories. For those interested, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook under user page name our native stories and check out our website and subscribe to our email list at www.nativestories.org also stay tuned for our mobile application coming out on android and apple stores soon